This is Alexander Sevig and you are listening to Stars End Podcast. The, the whole planet is just uh, like a very large Orange County, California, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and to the many, many listeners we have in Orange County, California, I, We're assure, sorry. I assure you that's not an insult. It's a compliment. Don't worry. <laughs> Hello and welcome to season three of Star's End, a podcast dedicated to Isaac Asimov's classic sci-fi series, Foundation. We are reading Asimov's fiction this season, but we'll keep you informed on show news for Apple TV's season two. While we all wait for that, the three of us will be here with our own inimitable take on Asimov's universe. Please join us. You'll be glad you did. Welcome to episode 18 of season three of the Star's End podcast. This week, we're going to continue with The Naked Sun with the middle section, which does a lot of setting up of the basic elements of the mystery, and also gives us a lot of insight into Solarian life and possibly Asimov's thoughts on certain interesting topics like eugenics, which seems to be a thread that runs through this book quite a bit. I guess one of the things we've, we've just been discussing is how, as far as the TV show goes, TV show goes, um, there has been still no new news. And uh, I, I have to say, I'm, I'm a little worried about it because I see how Apple Plus advertises shows like Severance or Ted Lasso and not so much Foundation. And I worry that they, they may not be as wholly committed to it as as David Goyer, who wants eight seasons, would like. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, my main thought was that it was supposed to be a, a, a show that generated awards for the network, supposed to be one of their prestige shows, and we've, they've, they've come out of the Emmys with two technical nominations, which is, I don't think, what they're aiming for. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think that, although I don't really understand the economics of streaming services, when you see some of the behavior that they engage in, in terms of canceling shows that seem very popular etc i mean it seems like a show needs to drive subscriptions and i just wonder whether foundation still has the ability to drive any new subscriptions i mean you'd think that you know foundation fans asimov fans would have subscribed for season one i can't believe that they're going to drive an enormous number of new subscriptions out of subsequent seasons of the show so i'm i'm beginning to get a little tiny bit worried about this show fair enough well you know guys I, right now i think uh the tv show is just a tiny outpost on terminus but uh by season number 1000 it'll take over the whole universe so not to worry just and then we'll all be part of a giant hive mind centered around 
exactly. Apple Plus TV, which is that's really the goal, right? Is to yeah. turn us all into the Apple Hive. Yeah, just well, just just wait a thousand years; it'll it'll be there definitely. And if we're on one hive mind, hive mind, we really only need one channel. That's right. Save a lot of money. <laughs> yes. All right. So this week we read the middle six chapters of The Naked Sun. Um, just to, I, I do have notes on it, which I'll, I'll go through. But in, in brief, what it looks like Asimov is doing is kind of going around, setting up the elements of the mystery. He is deepening the, the amount of facts we have about what actually happened. And we're also meeting the cast of characters or really the cast of suspects who could possibly have done this. So that's kind of a very standard mystery trope, right? Because at some point, I I think there's sort of a a social contract between the mystery writer and the mystery reader, which is that long before the end of the book, you must have met everyone. It's wrong to bring in characters too late. I'm not sure what the deadline is for bringing in a new character, but it's somewhere in the middle of the book. You can't bring in some mystery character you've never met before in the final chapter who turns out to be the murderer. That's definitely not allowed. So you've got to bring in all the possible murderers and and set all of that up. And also we're getting a real view into Solarian society as as Elijah Bailey travels around, which is something no Solarians do, by the way. He's traveling around visiting people because he insists on seeing them in person rather than viewing them. And uh, we get a real insight into into this society there's a lot of world building going on here i think it's very interesting so let's let's go into the the recap when last we left off hannes gruer the head of security had been apparently poisoned which elijah saw because they were viewing at the time uh daniel runs into the room and shouts robots do this do that save your master's been poisoned it's certainly very mysterious who could have done this Brewer is clearly alone in his estate with his robots. It, it certainly does not seem to be accidental. Thoughts go immediately to Gladia, but how could she have done it? She's a thousand miles away. The doctor views Gruer. He's not seeing him. We don't really know whether Gruer is going to survive, but there's certainly, uh, Daniil has told the robots to go out and find any other masters that might be wandering around the estate. There are no masters. There's no signs of any masters. There is the robot servant who brought the water who is brought in in a state of partial roadblock. He's limping, he's lisping, because he feels that he's, I don't know why I say he to the robot, but anyway, that's, that's my bias, I guess. Uh, you know, feels like there's been a first law violation because he brought his master something that clearly poisoned him. He says it was just water. Anyway, and, and the water had been standing around for a long time, which is an important clue for Elijah. Altum Thule, the doctor, doesn't really have much knowledge of how to treat things because Solarians never have this happen. They, they don't get sick for the most part. If they do, too bad. Um, it, it generally tends to show that there was something wrong with the genetic analysis that was done before birth. This is this topic we keep coming back to, this genetic analysis that only, only certain uh, children are allowed to reach adulthood because of their genetic makeup. The doctor, meanwhile, has no idea how to run tests. You know, he says, how can I test the tap for poison? And, and, and 
Lige says, bring an animal and feed, you know, give the animal the water and see what happens. That never occurred to him. And of course, as is typical Solarian behavior, that all the evidence has been destroyed again. The poison's gone. The glass is gone. Everything's cleaned up because they're fanatic about cleaning everything up. But Bailey already has a theory how this could have been done. He doesn't tell us what it is, but he already has a theory. Um, he, he calls up Gladia, um, again, viewing, but they have dinner together. She in her place, he in his place, and it's sort of sewn together by the machinery of viewing. Turns out the doctor is the same one who treated her. There's, I think Elijah asks her if there are no other doctors on Solari. And she says, oh yeah, there's like 10 doctors, which I guess for 20,000 people is for, who never get sick is a pretty reasonable number of doctors. So. She feels sorry for the doctor because, you know, sometimes things are so bad he actually has to see people in person. And there's some discussion of gene analysis and eugenics, again, between Gladia and, and Elijah. And we're going we're gonna to see lots and lots of that. So Elijah says, as we move to chapter eight, Elijah says he's sure that the poisoner and the murderer are the same. I mean, here we are on a planet that's never had a murder before. And all of a sudden there's two of them within a very short space of time. He does say that his theory, which again, he doesn't tell us what the theory is, does not eliminate Gladia, who gets very upset. She's waving a knife around, although they're viewing. It's not like she can do anything with a knife. Afterwards, Elijah tells Daniil he doesn't he actually doesn't think Gladia is the murderer. Uh, then he, uh, he reads a bunch of book films about Solaria. And uh, we see again Elijah's stubbornness where the robot wants to show him how to use the viewer. And Elijah's like, no, 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 I'll figure this out myself. And he never actually gets it working properly because he's too stubborn to let the robot show him how to use it. That was a good, nice little touch about Elijah's personality. Sounds like me, actually. It's like, no, I don't, I don't need to read the manual. I can, <laughs> I can figure this thing out. Manuals. And he reads, yeah, manuals, exactly. Who, who writes manuals anyway? Mr. Monk's brother writes manuals. They're usually, they're usually translated badly from some foreign language. You can't really understand them. Anyway, uh, so he reads about Solarian life, doesn't quite understand it. There are weird relationships that he doesn't understand. And then he goes to sleep and he dreams about Jesse, except it seems like she's more like Gladia than Jesse. And uh, they're outside in the sun, but they're not afraid. They're not upset about it. We then meet Corwin Adelbish, another great Asimov name, by the way, um, who is the acting head of security in the absence of Gruer. And he's, he is a stereotypical spacer. Oh, and by the way, uh, Elijah, Elijah does a thing that we see Asimov characters do a lot, which is that um, when he's told that maybe Adelbish will talk to him in half an hour or something, he's like, get him now. I want him now. I demand service. And so they get him now. He, he's a stereotypical spacer. He's arrogant. He's aggressive. He doesn't even accept that Gruer was poisoned. He just you know, thinks it could just be a coincidence. And of course, Elijah just absolutely dismisses that. He says there are political implications. And Adelbish tells Elijah he might as well just go home, really, because he doesn't want him there. And Elijah does, again, another thing that Asimov characters do, which is he threatens Adelbish with stuff that he cannot possibly cannot possibly live up to. If you want to face down Aurora and artillery, well, then go ahead and send me home. But I'm pretty sure that the other spacer worlds will, will be here in force invading. And 
I, I felt like that was a little bit of overreach, but I also felt like it was very typical of, of Asimov characters who get, you know, like Harry Seldon getting really up on his high horse and demanding to be fed immediately and, and just saying, well, I'm an important person and, you know, Ido Demerzel is going to make sure that, that uh, I'm taken care of or, or not Ido Demerzel. It was, uh, what's his name? <laughs> the other Ido Demerzel. Um, Cheddar Homan. Cheddar Homan, exactly. He's, an, you know, I'm an important, I'm important to Cheddar Homan, so you better take care of me. They like uh, to throw their weight around. You know, yeah, I, I, could, throw- I could see one of these characters getting upset and say, like, why are there green M&Ms in this candy dish? <laughs> exactly. I My said- contract specifically states. <laughs> <laughs> uh, interestingly, Elijah tells a little white lie to Adelbish and Daniil does not correct him. In fact, he confirms what Elijah was saying without lying. And uh, there's, there's a nice little passage where Daniil just says, yes, the spacer worlds are very interested in what's going on. Very anodyne, very neutral kind of thing. But Elijah listening to it says, these people would certainly hear this as a threat. And I think that's actually probably accurate. And Elijah insists that Adelbish give him permission to see people. He does not want to view anybody anymore he wants to see them he wants to go visit them and while daniel thinks that might not be safe elijah insists on it but daniel actually tells him i am not going to let you do that because it's not safe and we get we get a i think a very fun part of this book actually where elijah tricks daniel first he pulls his blaster out and says well i can just i can just threaten you with this blaster and you'll have to let me go and daniel says yeah i thought of that which is why i took the charge out of your blaster so you know blast away and so elijah says well how do i even know you're a robot you you could just be another spacer impersonating a robot i need to see the metal under the skin so show me right now and it's an order and daniel shows him the metal and Elijah immediately calls other robots into the room and goes, look, see, that's not a human being. It's a robot. Do you acknowledge that? And they acknowledge it. And you don't have to take orders from him because he's just a ro- he's just a robot. And he actually has the robots detain Daniil in the room. I, I thought that was very clever. And, and uh, when I first read it, I really didn't see that coming, that he was going to have these other robots basically sit on Daniil while he escapes to go see people. And uh, so that I, you know, I thought that was just a very fun scene. So he goes off to visit people. And the first person he visits is a sociologist named Anselmo Kamat. We do see a little bit more of Elijah's trouble with exposure to the outside world. He asks Kamat to describe the experience of seeing versus viewing. Because Kamat is there in the room with him and he's trying, but he's getting increasingly nauseous as the, uh, as the interview goes on. He says, it's not like a panic. It's more like, uh, he says, I feel like I can smell you from here. I, it was definitely a feeling of like disgust, you know, that he, he just, he's getting more and more uncomfortable as the interview goes along. Now he says something I thought also was very interesting is that Kmot believes it's, that Solaria is more like Earth than any of the other spacer worlds, which seems a bit surprising because it's so different from Earth. And he says, no, 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 uh, not, uh, not current Earth. But Earth's past, and he tells him the um, the history of Solaria, which was that it was settled from another planet called Nexon, and that Solaria was originally the playground of the aristocrats. Nexon was getting crowded, and the rich people from Nexon came to Solaria. They got these big estates, and it became a sort of a uh, a badge of wealth. 
And eventually they realized that if they didn't do something, that Solaria would get just as overpopulated as Nexon, which is where this whole thing about limiting the population to 20,000 and having these gigantic estates very separate from your neighbor. Uh, it became, again, a, a sort of a badge of aristocracy that you'd go out, walk around your huge estate and never run into your neighbor. And over a period of 300 years, which is how long it's been since Solaria was settled, it became their culture, which is that they do not see other people. They they only view them and they have these, these massive estates with loads and loads of robots. And Elijah asks him for a mathematical analysis of sociology and Kmot has never heard of such a thing. And this I thought was as interesting because of course, psychohistory is kind of a mathematical analysis of sociology. He mentioned one thing called the Terramin relationship, which is the differential of incentives versus privileges granted. No, in, sorry, inconveniences suffered versus privileges granted. And I looked that up to see if that was a real thing. I did the same thing. Yep. And of course, what I got was evidence that a lot of other people have asked the same question. <laughs> and apparently not. Apparently not. And I, it is my belief, although any sociologists out there can tell me this is different, that Earth sociology is a lot more like Solarian sociology at the moment and a lot less like what Elijah wants, which is... He wants calculations and equations. He wants like a differential equation to explain how these things work. Um, my impression of sociology is that it is more of what uh, hard scientists derisively call a soft science, which is uh, more of more qualitative, although not, not without actual study, but more qualitative than quantitative. And Elijah wants quantitative sociology. He wants, he wants psychohistory and he's not getting it out of this guy. But you get the impression that on Earth, sociology is more of the quantitative than the qualitative. And at first, Kmot is sort of insulted by that, but he sort of starts to he starts to think about it after a while. Anyway, his his he does tell his theory, which has to do with Sparta, which I thought was that was strange. There is a lot of BS about Sparta, about the helots and all the different classes in Sparta. I mean, to me, Sparta is a very strange comparison for Solaria because Sparta, you know, the word Spartan means not luxurious, right? And, and Spartans were famous for putting their children through these horrific training regimens where a lot of them died. But when they came out of it, there were these great warriors and that Sparta was known for denying itself luxuries so that it could be a warrior race. Now that's, you know, some of that is probably just legend that's grown up over the thousands of years. They certainly did have the helots who were this slave class who really were only there to be kind of cannon fodder, even though there were no cannons. Um, and he says that, well, what, what Solaria is, is just the aristocratic class. It's just the leisure class and that the helots are the robots. It, it turns out that he, he himself was a sculptor and a composer before becoming a sociologist. So he's sort of the, the dilettante class, somebody who goes from little job to little job. There's virtually no expertise here on Solaria as we keep encountering. It comes out that, that the murder victim, uh, Del Mar, had volunteered to be a fetal engineer because it's a job nobody wants to do. Nobody wants to be involved with children. Children are practically a taboo word to even to say. Uh, but Del Mar wanted to do it because he thought it was very important to work with the children and make sure that they were brought into the world as proper Solarians. And of course, that puts him 100% uh, in the middle of the whole eugenic program that the Solarians have. Elijah asks Kmot whether uh, Gladia, who he knows, because all adult Solarians seem to know each other, could Gladia kill? And he says, 
women are surprising creatures. I think that's, uh, those are fair words. At one point, Elijah asks him whether his desire to actually see, because he says he actually wanted to see Elijah instead of viewing him. And uh, Kamot admits that there's an element of scatophilia about it, which for those who don't, who can't translate that word, it basically literally means love of shit. Yes. And, uh, you know, I guess he sort of feels like he may have some kind of perverse attraction to this disgust over being, uh, seeing people in, in person. And then Kamot announces at the end of chapter 10 that he considers positronic robots to be Solaria's great weapon against everybody else. And he puts forward a, a theory about how, because we have these robots to do our menial tasks, ultimately all humans on all planets, including Earth, are going to be turned into this leisure class only like Solaria, and every planet inevitably is eventually going to become like Solaria. And this is, this is to me, kind of the beginnings of the idea that Asimov eventually has that the robots are bad for humanity because of this, because they create a stagnant society that inevitably will just become this, this leisure class of people who really have no energy, do nothing, and, and, uh, and just live off the robots. So uh, Elijah then goes on to the second, uh, second person here, to Delmar's lab to see his assistant, and oh my God, it's a woman. Uh, <laughs> which is something, by the way, this is not the last time he's going to do that. He's going to be surprised to see a woman in a position of authority. But then sort of have a little conversation with himself. Well, well, not that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, you know, of course, in our enlightened society, there are women all over the place. You know, they even sometimes rise to reasonably high levels in society. I mean, he does it. He's going to do it again. I just started reading The Robots of Dawn because I, I, I decided to skip ahead. And there is an even bigger scene about that, about a, a woman being in a position of authority. And Elijah is at first shocked, but then kind of reminds himself, oh, well, you know, there are there's even a captain, a police captain who's a woman. So why should I be surprised to see a woman in a position of authority? Anyway, it's just another example of Asimov unable to, to get out of that mindset. She also does something which I find hilarious that Asimov characters throughout all of these books say, which is the phrase, see here. She says, see here. And I, I just love that. I've never heard anyone actually say that in real life, but Asimov characters say it all the time. So that's just my little bias. Anyway. He goes to see her. She first doesn't realize that. She doesn't know who he is, but you know he's got the permission. So Clarissa Cantaro is her name. She raises the kids at the kid farm. Uh, it's literally a kid farm. Um, she keeps 25 feet away from Elijah. He has his exposure issues again. Uh, she's not a volunteer. She does that. She was, she was recruited to do this job. And um, she can barely even say the word children, but she says it. Uh, she keeps describing the murder victim, Delmar, as a good Solarian, whatever that means. There's a lot of explanation of uh, the complicated relationship between the robots and children, because the first law makes it somewhat difficult for the robots to discipline the children, to spank them, because, of course, that's the only way you can discipline children, uh, even thousands of years in the future. Uh, and she talks about Delmar's efforts to get the robots to be able to spank children without going into Roblox. And how the children pick up on that and they, they use it against the robots, which <laughs> children definitely would do that. No question about it. I think of the, the children in the Orville, of the, uh, the Kalon children torturing the poor Kalon robot. Remember that scene? Yep. Yeah. Just, I'm like, yeah, that's, that's, that's children, all right. 
<laughs> I've met children. I've been a child. I know what they're like. Anyway, she's pretty sure that Gladia did the crime. Who else could have done it? Uh, she laughs at the idea that she might have uh, because she just couldn't get close enough to a person to kill them. And really, that's a that's an ongoing theme. That it's really hard to get a Solarian close enough to another Solarian to actually beat him over the head with something, which is what happened to Del Mar. He was whacked with something. She mentions the roboticist Liebig. We don't meet Liebig in this, in this section, but he's a roboticist who worked with Del Mar, and that's going to be important later. We also see that she, uh, Cantoro, has a ring that she wears, uh, which is a symbol of her genetic purity that among the Solarians who are selected for their genetic purity, there's a small percentage at the very top of the purity chart. And they're very proud of that. And so she wears a ring designating her extreme racial purity. Uh, it's part of the reason why Delmar chose her to be his assistant, because she would have a very stable personality because of the, uh, the genetics. At one point, Elijah even remarks that she seems to substitute genetics for evidence, which I thought was a, a pithy comment there. Anyway, uh, she describes the children. She talks about how the ones from three to 10 years old insist on playing with each other. And they're trying to stamp that out. Uh, Del Mar thought that in 3000 years, he could breed children who never needed to see other human beings. Uh, you know, she complains about how oh, the babies cry and they need, they need attention. Oh my gosh. And you know, the, and, and the other thing is that uh, Del Mar wanted robots who could easily discipline children, and he was working with Liebig to try to develop robots who could better discipline the children. Elijah asks about courting. How do they court for, you know, how do, how do people find husbands and wives? And she, she says it's all done by gene analysis. And all of a sudden, somebody shoots an arrow at Elijah and it misses. And um, it comes out that the, the arrow is probably poisoned. One of the kids did it. The best archer among all the kids is given this poison. And, and, and the description he's given of Earth people, an inferior sort of human who ought not to be allowed on Solaria because he breeds disease, master. That's the description of Earthman that the robot gives him. Um, he doesn't know who told him that. The whole thing is very strange. Where did the poison arrow come from? Uh, what happened here? We don't know, but that's where chapter 12 ends, basically with this assassination attempt on Elijah, this unsuccessful assassination attempt. He was actually only saved because being outside, he was starting to kind of faint and he kind of fell out of the way just as the arrow went by and, and hit a tree near him. Um, so we have, a lot of, we have a lot of mystery, we have a lot of setup, a lot of new people, and an awful lot of talk about eugenics. And I don't think that it's uh, approving talk about eugenics. Let's let's not let's not of all the things we tar Asimov with. Let's not tar him with being a eugenicist. I think he certainly thinks it's a weakness of the Solarians. If anything, I didn't think he was shocked enough by their by their eugenics. It, it it's Elijah kind of looks at it as a it's a quirk. It's quirky. It's not how we do things on Earth. But he's not that shocked about how they weed out the racially impure so thoughts it's interesting that you say racially why do you say racially ah why do i say racially i think my mind just immediately goes there 
that um, that the genetic purity to me is in inextricably linked up with racial purity, even if there is only one race, which is kind of the human race here. Yeah, I, I, that's a good catch. I, I but I, I, I just think I just associate that those two things together. That in 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 our world, that's almost always what it's about. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I think that in, if I remember correctly, the description of the details of the eugenics program did not mention race per se. No, not at all. But we we do know that the spacers are often described in quasi-Aryan terms. Yes, that general. is true. So I, I think it's it, there is some ambiguity there, right? And um, there's a lot of the same kind of language that both the spacers and the earth people use about each other, which is reminiscent of the kind of racial language. Elijah can't help thinking about the spacers as dirty spacers. Mm-hmm. And the spacers think of the humans in terms of, as this robot has has said, in terms of spreading disease. Mm-hmm. And there's there's just a lot of that, and that that is very reminiscent of kind of racial language. I mean, just look at the way people talk about oh, immigrants. Yeah, no question. So Asimov, I mean, obviously this is this is, you know, this is all in the aftermath of World War II, and Asimov is certainly aware of all that, which is again why I think it's it's a little surprising he's not more shocked about it. Maybe maybe he's just laying it out there and and, and letting us be shocked about it, or maybe at the time, not that long after World War II a reader of this would just know to be shocked by eugenics. Mm. And so Asimov didn't have to play it up because the reader would know, oh my God, I, I should be shocked by this. Yeah, I, I don't know either. It, I, it's an interesting question, but uh, I, don't, I don't exactly know how to project a reader response back, uh, back onto the 50s. No, of course. Of course. Yeah. yeah. And this was... Do we know when this this one was? Fifty six. Oh, so I, I think I asked that last time. Yeah, fifty six. So it hasn't been that long since uh, no. since the war and, and and the Holocaust and all of that. Yeah, and and the other the other aspect of things, you know, beyond the eugenics, is that we're kind of setting up this sort of a drawing room mystery, right? Where, uh, spoiler alert, ultimately Elijah is going to get all these suspects in one room and and confront them, the way the drawing room detective does. Uh, so it's a kind of a combination of, uh, and there's no reason why you can't do this, a combination of the locked room mystery and the drawing room mystery where, you know, we are, we are deepening the details of the locked room and who could have gotten there. We're certainly getting this sense that it's really hard to imagine a Solarian getting in a room with another Solarian and getting close enough to whap him over the head with something. And we still don't have a murder weapon. Obviously, that's going to have to wait until the next section. But there's a lot of talk about, you know, there's talk about how fastidious Del Mar was. Uh, even though he worked with the children, he was still very, uh, you know, he was, he was a good Solarian. He was very, uh, you know, the Solarians tend to be very lazy about how they dress when they view, for example. And Del Mar did not like that. Uh, he wanted you to be, to be buttoned up and, and, and look good in, in viewing. Uh, but in terms of seeing... He, he didn't want that. And she describes him as almost as bad as Liebig himself. And so we get a little preview of Liebig that he's even worse about seeing. Uh, we see in the encounter with the sociologist Tamoy that um, he, he can only stand it for a little while. And when Elijah says the phrase face to face, he actually has to get up and run out of the room. And then he calls him 
you know, and views him later from another part of the house and explains he just, that was it. He just couldn't take it when he heard the words face to face. So, you know, he is really laying on thick how, how much these Solarians yeah. cannot stand to be in the room with another person. I can Even imagine our breaths mingling. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and Elijah's like, well, you know, like you're breathing air that's breathed by animals, fish, whatever. And he's, yeah, you know, of course you're right, but it doesn't matter. I, I still am really disgusted by it. And yeah, when he's when he's asked why he agreed to view Bailey, he's like, "Well, I might have some scatophilia scala going." Yeah, that's quite a word, scatophilia. It, it really is. I don't think I've ever seen that word in any other context. <laughs> I mean, I have seen the word scatological. Sure. Scatophilia is a word that, yeah, that that's a that's a new one. Yeah. You just For aren't me. reading the right literature. John. You're right. You're right. Yeah, really. Right get a get a book about dung beetles. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I guess I have some reading to do. I do not have one to loan you, I would point out. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of the of the mystery, have we learned anything new about the mystery? Do we do we have any suspects? Do we, along with Elijah, know how the the how Gruer was poisoned? What's going on with this poison arrow that got shot at Elijah? What what the heck? I don't feel like we're getting a lot of uh, hints at where this is going. I mean, we're we're given, I guess we're given clue. Like each like each additional murder attempt is a clue of some sort. But uh, Elijah does not spill the beans to the reader, really. Like there, I don't I don't think I got a sense of where this is supposed to be going. Um, other than that, it's weird. Like, I mean, get like getting shot with a poisoned arrow is not what I expect from a novel about a, a robot filled planet in outer space. If well, uh, go ahead, Joseph. No, this is a, a, I think a significant thing, or at least a thing that could be significant. Um, trying to forget what I know about the latter parts of the novel, but I think that could be significant is the fact that uh, Delmar was working on robots where they'd weakened the first law. Right. And so, also that when he interrogates the robot who is there with the kid who shoots the arrow at him, mm -hmm. it's clear that that robot has been manipulated. Yes. For for example, Elijah asks him what his definition of an Earthman is, and he tells him that whole thing about disease. And he also says, who told you that? And the robot says, I don't know, because it's been erased from my memory banks. So no. someone is manipulating robots. And that and that makes the mind go back to the Gruer poisoning, where you have a glass of water that he drinks every day, which is left out to get to room temperature because he doesn't like it too cold, and then is brought to him by a robot. And you have to think that Elijah's theory, which he says doesn't eliminate anyone, no matter how far away they are, might have something to do with the manipulation of robots as well. Right. And so that's beginning. If there's a, if there's a hint of anything, we're beginning to get that hint that someone's manipulating robots. Well, or at the minimum deceiving them. Right. right. Well, yeah. I mean, that's I mean, right. You know, you know the, the robot couldn't have handed and, and one assumes that he was the, the, the robot was manipulated into handing that particular hour to the boy and then forgetting about it. Right. The but, robot also believes that their their travels around the grounds were random. Right. 
Yeah, he believes the, the robot believes a lot of stuff, which I suspect aren't isn't true. <laughs> yeah, this poor robot has been lied um, to. But it, um, you know, it, I, I think it pre-configures how the poisoning has to have been done. Right, but the initial murder could not have been done by a minute. You could not manipulate a robot into smacking someone over the head with something heavy. Right. Although back in iRobot, Susan Calvin has a a method with a sufficiently weakened first law, and I'm not suggesting that's what happened here, and I happen to know that it isn't. But anyway, Susan, back in the, uh, was it Little Lost Robot, where they have a robot who has a weakened first law, and that one is very crudely weakened because instead of saying um, a robot may not harm a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm, they've just taken out the second part. So the robot can only actively can, cannot not actively harm a human being and they say well susan how could a robot like that actually harm a human being and she says well he could take a heavy object and throw it up in the air and then just not catch it and it could land on someone's head and, and kill them now I, I i don't know whether that's actually that would actually work or not with that weakened first law but unless you have a robot with a sufficiently weakened first law that's doing some some kind of rube goldberg contraption like that and also not pre-planning it because obviously mm. if the robot pre-planned it then that would violate even the, the weakened first law but anyway bottom line you can't manipulate a first law robot into beating someone to death with a blunt object right i don't think but yet we had that robot that was there at the at the murder scene lying on the ground in a state of almost total roadblock saying you're going to kill me you're going to kill me so even if someone's manipulating robots, that doesn't solve the initial murder. So we, we as, as is typical of mystery stories here in the middle section, we're still we're getting more questions and not so many answers. But spoiler alert, we will get our answers in, in the third section. <laughs> Shockingly, he will not leave it open and ambiguous at the end. It's, one, it's another part of the contract of the readers. You actually solve the crime by the you end. You actually of the have book. to solve the yeah. crime. Right. Yeah. Philip K. Dick was famous for not resolving his ambiguities mm. which led many people to hate hate philip k dick i personally love philip k dick but uh, i'm a big fan of ambiguity what, what emo phillips called the devil's volleyball so there we are we have new characters we have lots of eugenics and we have lots of questions so i, I find it interesting that in 1956 this planet, which is really a planet that has filled with dumb guys. Yes. Um, but th this planet is settled by the upper crust of a group called the Nixonians. Okay. Certainly Nixon had already been vice president of the United States in yes. 1952. He's elected in 52 and reelected in 56. So the, 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 as he's writing this, that the, the, the second elections going on i can only imagine asimov not a big fan of richard nixon <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of people who weren't a big fan of richard nixon although you would think that the upper crust of people who were fans of nixon might want to set up the society it is a as you say a society filled with dumb guys and <laughs> well, extremely well, arrogant dumb guys extremely arrogant, arrogant and, and and affluent right they're they're 100 leisure class so they're, yeah, they're super they're, affluent they're uh, arrogant they're dumb and they're, they're uh, incompetent as well at whatever it is that they do i mean they they live very long lives move from thing to thing as you might imagine you would do if you had a 300 year lifespan and yet they never actually get any good at any of the things that they do 
the the whole planet is just uh like a very large orange county california of course (laughs) (laughs) and to the many many listeners we have in orange county california i'm sorry i assure you that's not an insult it's a compliment don't worry (laughs) (laughs) we don't see any robot caddies do we no, I was waiting for the robot butler, and I would say, "Now no. I know who did it." It was mm. the robot butler who did it. Robot cat. Yeah, no one seems to play golf. It's true. I, mm. I guess that's a point in their favor. You'd think yeah. they would. They have these enormous estates with lots of unused land. They would yeah, turn them into golf courses. But uh, very possibly, Asimov was not much of a golfer, and so probably didn't think even think about that. Yeah. Uh, we we don't we don't see any team sports, of course, because they're Solarians. So you know. yeah, that's true. And yet, and yet, and I guess you needed this for the for the the uh, the assassination attempt. But when they oh, well, we encourage the kids to do this this sport that requires no contact, and it's called archery. It's like yeah, golf would have fit in perfectly there. <laughs> they could have tried to kill Bailey with a poisoned golf a poisoned ball. golf ball. <laughs> <laughs> Um, just just smack him with a two iron you know, that, that would work i guess that's too reminiscent of the first crime yeah no. i don't know were there any golf clubs in the uh in the elmar estate hmm i don't know yeah let, let me follow up on this uh what you just said that they're they're all dummies on this planet <laughs> yeah. um because actually this is this is something that i was wondering a bit about it, that there seems to be a kind of odd combination of um know-how and lack of it on this planet mm-hmm. uh, it, like in general we are told from the first novel that the spacers are far adv- more advanced than earth in in every scientific and technical field as well as their economies their military might etc um here there's definitely a mix of things that they seem to be ahead in and behind in so we know that they're more advanced in robotics even though we don't we don't really get a lot of discussion of of robotics uh in this novel there there'll be much more in the next novel they are apparently fantastic with genetics but at the same time they're terrible doctors which is an odd combination Mm -hmm. But they may not be so fantastic with genetics. I think it's is possibly yeah. hinted at here that that they may be buying into the typical kind of eugenic myths that you can determine everything through genetics. And, and right, uh, okay, yeah. that's and they, they may be kidding yeah. themselves about. And if you couple that, if you couple that with arrogance, with the arrogance, yeah, basically they're breeding a, a planet of chihuahuas. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's a very you know it's a it's a very interesting contrast to other post-scarcity worlds that we've been presented with like star trek or the orville i mean there was a conversation in the orville between kelly and um who's that woman from the planet that they uh well the up and down vote planet mm-hmm. you know who I asked, remember her name yeah i can't remember her name or the name of her planet so that there we go i'm, I'm old uh where, where she asked what do people do when they can do anything and she says they do whatever you know whatever they they like to do they do whatever they can be good at and they can really concentrate on it a star trek is the same way where you know people don't need to work because they're living in a post-scarcity world but you get these incredible scientists and artists and you know everybody can really just concentrate on on greatness asimov is saying put people in a post-scarcity world and it'll be like Wally, you know, they'll turn into these fat guys who, who can't do anything. 
anymore who just you know think they're good at everything but actually are good at nothing it's it's a it's a fairly interesting contrast and it also predates star trek mm-hmm. and there's also i mean i think you know if you look at uh, uh the stereotypical view of that time period the, the the time of the rugged individualist you know the 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 person who works hard and gets ahead and pulls themselves up by their bootstraps I think there's a little bit of that here saying, yeah, well, what would happen if we didn't have to do that? Well, we'd all turn into these, into these arrogant know-nothings. So is this, is this kind of like um, the sort of American mythos of the West, right? That, that's sort of, is, is that shining through here that what, what one needs is, you know, the, the struggle and the challenge and the rugged individualism and yeah. for yeah. forging a new society and then, I don't, I don't know if, if maybe Solaria is sort of decrepit old Europe or something, but um, uh, it's a, it's I a, think there is an element yeah. of that. I think there's an, you know, that, that Asimov is, is saying, Hey, I, I worked hard for this doctorate. I'm going to be Dr. Asimov. <laughs> yeah, I think there is. I think there's an element of that where, you know, he's saying, you know, you, the struggle is what makes greatness happen. Take the struggle away and there will not be there. You'll you'll take the energy away too. Yeah, well, I mean, and I think that's you know, I think that's a well understood thing. I remember a comment by Al Franken, reference to access to higher education that you know, the person with the next great innovation is not going to be a son of a of a of an alumni. It's going to be the son of a bus driver who's gotten gotten on through, or, you know, gotten in with assistance. Right. Although, again, there's an element there of trying to overcome uh, social inequality and say, yeah. we, we should give the son of the bus driver the we same should. opportunity that the son of the, of the college alumnus has. Yeah. Uh, well, that makes a lot of sense. Honestly. It, I, I agree. It makes a lot of sense. Oh, I had something. <laughs> I had something and it has flown out of my head. Um, oh uh, yeah. So, so, you know, a theme that kind of runs through these robot novels from the first one to the last one is the potential emigration of people from Earth to new planets, but done in a way that's different from the way the spacers have done it, uh, done without so much help from robots, done in a more, you know, more trying to recreate the the frontier, as Dan referred to, or the Old West, where we're going to go there and we're going to scratch out a living out of the land and and that's going to give us energy. And it's something that we're going to see that Han Fostolf is very interested in. Um, he thinks, in fact, that spacers shouldn't even have these long lives, that that having long lives is a part of the stagnation, that, that the generations should turn over more quickly and that that, that would lend energy to the to the human race and it's a theme through all of these books that you know we're going to see it we're going to see it more in in uh, in the robots of dawn when we start to see the beginnings of human emigration from earth to to new planets uh, how important that is how important the struggle is again in order to provide the the energy and the impetus and for the for the health of all humanity we need to not live the way the spacers live we need to live in uh, uh, the more frontier way with with the struggle so Asimov, despite his, you know, his somewhat, uh, let's call it lefty politics, uh, is not immune to that, that kind of idea, which is much, you know, much more of a Heinlein kind of idea that, you know, that, uh, that nature red in tooth and claw, it's, it's the struggle, the competition that, that makes us great. Yeah. And yet, I mean, if you want somebody who 
dove much more purposely or much more um, much more favorably into eugenics. Heinlein's right there with the Howard families. Yeah, we should do a podcast about Heinlein. He's so he's so interesting. Oh, in- indeed, <laughs> indeed. He's such a weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> he's all over the place, as somebody said. Yeah, yeah. That was that was that wasn't that Andy last week. I think that was Andy. Yeah, yeah. He he's there. Are a lot of these science fiction writers were very interesting characters. Mm. Uh, Philip K. Dick, who I mentioned before, also. It took a lot of drugs in the '60s. Had a lot of very strange ideas, a very strange life, and uh, it died relatively young. I was in a conversation with somebody about Ted Sturgeon the other day, who mm-hmm. uh, you know, who was was in the the great collection of science fiction writers, but he kept trying to bring in ideas that people didn't really want brought in, particularly about sexuality at a time when you know not just sexuality but homosexuality was not a subject that was talked about. And Ted Sturgeon was in there trying to get these stories published that were more or less overt with those themes. And, you know, it's funny. People talk about the Star Trek episode of Muck Time. And is there like a homosexual uh, theme there? And, well, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. Maybe Spock and Kirk are just friends. And then you go, look, who, who wrote a Muck Time? Well, it was Ted Sturgeon. And then you go, OK, I don't think it's a coincidence anymore. And uh, there's just this, this whole collection of just very, very interesting people writing these science fiction stories in that in that golden age of science fiction of the kind of the 50s and 60s i guess people have talked about that before yeah but (laughs) you could probably talk about that infinitely and still find interesting things well maybe not infinitely but me i can i can talk infinitely because that's that's me that's my personality (laughs) well and certainly would be large whatever it is all right i mean uh, is there anything else we we want to cover here on this part of the naked sun uh, as we look forward to the conclusion of the mystery and and i don't know more eugenics more more uh more disgust for other human beings yeah. i i'm i'm really looking forward to all the eugenics <laughs> and the disgust that's that's what i'm all about really <laughs> and the sex you know which which of course goes hand in hand with disgust if you're sufficiently freudian yeah. Well, I mean, it is the naked sun, right? So it's it is the naked sun. Yes. You know, dirty, nasty, sexy sun. <laughs> um. All right. Well, on yeah, that note, <laughs> go ahead, Joseph. No, okay. The, the the only thing I seem to have on my list here that um that, that we haven't hit on is that that Azabov is clearly no friend of Peta. <laughs> because he wants to bring an animal to test the the water. Yeah, well, yeah, and also the arrow. So like, go get an expendable animal and stab it with the arrow and see what happens. It's a po- it's poisoned. That might be slightly in the next. That might be slightly in the next. Um, Aren't oh. there chemical tests you can do of things that <laughs> that might even actually tell you what the poison is? Oh, you would think. You would think. And presumably Asimov as a doctorate in chemistry with <laughs> some awareness. Yeah, that. there's no thought like let's let's do some chemical tests to figure this stuff. Because yeah, if we well, give the-, the water to the animal and it dies, we know it was poison. We don't know what the poison was. So don't we That's true. Know? And if we have a guy lying in a hospital bed dying of the poison, don't we want to know what poison he was given? You do. Well, yeah. doesn't Thune at some point, Thule rather, uh, at some point give a... Um, give a mini dissertation about how it would take forever to 
build up the knowledge in order to figure out what poison it was and that's why they were they 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 um, took what's his name and just you know well we'll get we're giving him bed rest and we're hoping we're giving him we're, some stimulants and yeah some yeah. bed rest yeah well yeah. he's another idiot you know their doctors are idiots yeah and so that's it's an idiocracy over on solaria it's a wonder that the robots don't rise up and just kill everybody because yeah. you know it's better for the human race if they yeah. Do that. yeah that's true if this if this planet continued we might be moving toward uh Cornbooth territory. If we've ever read the Little Black Man or the or the Marching Morons, I think so. I think I have. Ah, well, you should. Those are those are wonderful. Okay. And I think again, not this is a spoiler for the whole series, but in the end, we don't know what happened to the Salarians, do we? They they sort of disappear, mm -hmm. and we do meet in in one of the sequels. We do meet a. Uh, future Solarian, but the vast bulk of the Solarians seem to be gone. Right? Yep. It, it, it's, I mean, and I think that that speaks well of speaks well of Asimov's opinion of the, of the Solarians and, and, and whether or not he's endorsing any of this stuff because it's the one failed world out of all the 50 spacer worlds. Huh. Well, we, we do. They, they survive. They actually survive. If you remember, eventually, maybe we'll talk about Foundation and Earth. Yeah. They do. They do have a presence there. They do, so and it's very wrapped up in the in the future of Daniil Olivar. Yeah, yeah, that good one, friend. That one I don't remember well. Ah, uh, well, then I won't. I won't spoil that it any further. It's worth waiting for. Let <laughs> me just say that they get even weirder. Oh. <laughs> they do get even weirder. No doubt about it. And then they get even weirder than that. So, <laughs> it's a whole bunch of weird. All right, well, we'll leave that as an exercise for the reader. <laughs> Go ahead and read Foundation and Earth and find out what we're talking about. And next time we will wrap up this mystery of who killed Retain Delmar and tried to kill all these other people. Wonderful. All right, then. Thanks. Say goodbye. Okay. Bye, fellas. Well, that brings this week's episode to a close. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe and give us a like and a positive review on your favorite platform. You can also visit our website at starsendpodcast.wordpress.com, where there's always additional content. Our music, used by a Creative Commons license, is It Is Coming by Alex Mason. Also, follow us on Twitter, at starsendpodcast. Goodbye for now from the galactic capital of Trantor. This is where the stars end.